everybody, and thank you for joining me here again on the Soul of Diabetes podcast. I am your host, Chelsea Rice. And uh, first off, before we get started, I want to thank all of you for listening to the podcast, supporting my podcast, and most of all, supporting me. Um, this has been a, a very daunting task to create a podcast and to make the podcast relevant. And I want to definitely thank all of my guests who have been on so far. Um, I really appreciate your time that was uh, given for these interviews and for providing me with some fantastic content. Um, so once again, I want to thank all of you who uh, supported me throughout these past few months. We haven't quite gotten to a thousand downloads yet, but we're getting there. We're past the well, pretty well past the halfway mark. So we're we're getting there. So um, please be sure to share this podcast with anyone that you think is could be uh, you know touched by this podcast or someone you think would be interested or who it might help by listening to this podcast. So um, once again, thank you so much for all of the support. Uh, it'd be a very long list if I thanked everyone once you know individually, but you know we won't get into that. Maybe we'll get into that some other time. That might not be a bad episode if I just sat and just gave everybody a shout out or a roll call, as my dad used to say. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to my good friend, Tanya Hegeman. Tanya is an accomplished author, artist, and advocate. She and I had the pleasure of meeting each other back in Chicago a few years ago at Healthy Voices. She has got the coolest diabetes alert dog named Bobo. If you get a chance to um, check out Tanya's website or follow her on Instagram, and even Bobo has an Instagram account. And uh, it is the coolest, he's the coolest diabetes alert dog I've ever met. He, um, he'll even, he'll check you, you know, he'll tap you with his paw when he, when he detects that your blood sugar is running high or low. And he doesn't just do it for Tanya, he'll do it for most anybody he meets. Because he did it to me when I first met him. So he is, like I said, he is the coolest diabetes alert dog I've ever come across. Tanya and I have, um, we, whenever we get a chance to talk and we talk on the phone, um, more than a few times. And anytime we start talking, we just kind of go in and it just gets going and going and going. And she, um, she's got some fantastic insight um, about diabetes in the black community, as well as the LGBTQ community. And so we just, we sat down and we just had a, had a long talk and it, it proved to be one of my, one of my favorite discussions I've had and uh, like I said, anytime we get together and start talking, it just it just goes on and on. As a matter of fact, we had to stop at one point and then start over, start over to uh, to carry on with the conversation. So please um, take a listen to the uh, interview with Tanya. Um, I think you'll enjoy it, and definitely share it with anyone you think that may be touched by this episode. So thank you for joining me, and here is my interview with Tanya Hegeman. Tanya. Thank yeah. you for joining me here on the Soul of Diabetes podcast. I really appreciate you being a guest. How are you today? Thank you. I'm great, Chelsea. I've been really looking forward to having this conversation with you. As am I. As am I. We, you and I go back. When did we first mm -hmm. meet? Uh, was it at Healthy Voices? Or was it before Yes, that? but I had seen videos of your shows, some of oh. your shows, way back probably like 2007, 2008, when I first got diagnosed. Oh, okay. And so you were my first introduction to anyone <laughs> talking about diabetes, making jokes. And, you know, like, I really have to say that that, that inspired a lot for me because that I realized how hard it was because that audience was an audience of diabetics. 
Yeah. This was an audience of regular people. Right. And and you could see how they were like, am I supposed to laugh? Am I not supposed to laugh? Because, and then the irony of it was that, you know, they tell diabetes jokes in private and when they're not being mindful of it, but to hear a diabetic make jokes about it and talk about it kind of blew their minds a little bit. Yeah. It, it, it's almost like the same way with um, jokes about race. You know, mm-hmm. people like to tell a lot of, you know, race jokes, you know, behind closed doors. And then when they hear comedians like, you know, Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock, or even uh, further back when you see the work that Mel Brooks has done, when he makes mm-hmm. jokes about yeah. Uh, yeah. stuff like Blazing Saddles, people are like, okay, well, they find mm-hmm. it funny. It was... But they don't understand exactly where our funny comes from. Yeah. You know, it, it's layered in, um, obviously layered in pain, a lot of pain, uh, layered in truth. Yeah. And the, the the comedy or the humor is almost like a defense mechanism because, you know, I've heard Mel Brooks say that, you know, what he did to make fun of Hitler and uh, the producers, that was, that was his way of getting back at Hitler, you know, yeah. by making him a buffoon. You know, that mm-hmm. type of thing. And and then in, in Blazing Saddles, they took that humor and made racism as idiotic as it really is. Mm. You know, they made it look really stupid. They made racists look stupid. And so yeah. that was that was the thing that um, what I do with when I joke about it, like I was saying, I've said before, I don't make jokes about um, diabetes or people with diabetes. I make jokes about right. my own because I own mm-hmm. mine. This is mine. Mm-hmm. I know mine. And I know my mm-hmm. my story and I can find that humor in, yes. in mine. And so what I hope to do is was inspire other folks to look at theirs yeah. and find that power because it's empowering to 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 take yes. that take that pain and um and use it against itself. You know, he's like, okay, well, because <laughs> there's a lot of things that we have to go through as diabetics that uh Three to four days after, that was the most absurd thing I've ever seen in my life. I can't believe I did that. I had to go mm. through that. You know, mm. when it's happening, yeah, mm. it's pretty, it sucks. But, yeah. you know, a few days later, when you put it in perspective, it's like, yeah, well, I'm still here. And yeah. that was that was crazy. You know, that was, yeah. that was crazy. So, yeah. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. No, there's no one who really can understand. Oh, yeah. I just, I almost died about three times this week. And... <laughs> And one of those times was because I was trying, it was in the middle of the night and I was trying to drink uh, apple juice from a you know juice box with a straw and I almost choked to death and died. <laughs> yeah. And see, but I'm here. <laughs> yeah, and, and the only people that get that honestly are other diabetics and, and other people who suffer or live with chronic illnesses. Cause, mm-hmm. cause as you and I know, we meet other advocates from, um, <clears throat> from other uh, chronic illnesses, they get it, you know, because the stuff yeah. is, you know, when we talk to folks who have cancer or irritable bowel syndrome or HIV AIDS, they, the stuff that they go through, we can all relate because we got our own crap to have to deal with uh, yes. whether, when we're dealing with insurance or physicians or yes. just you know, healthcare policy, all that stuff, you know, we yeah. get all that. And that's how, uh, that's uh, like I said, when we met at, you know, healthy voices, that's why we, kind of come to um, a state of home, you know, because yeah. now we're around a bunch of people who get it. Yeah. That self-advocacy thing is really the key. Yeah. And that, that was really, I think, what I took out of seeing that you do that set. 
and you know you you in in your way of telling your story you go from protecting yourself living in a space of like I'm I have to protect myself to actually protecting other people right. and teaching other people how to protect themselves and you know that is a beautiful beautiful gift and you know I think that this is something that you know having a black di- an intentional black diabetic community has saved a lot of lives it's changed a lot of lives you know it's it's never going to be like it was which right. was very very lonely and isolating and shameful right. and silenced you yeah. know that silence is you know the real thing about diabetes that that will kill you the silence mm-hmm. and trying to pass for not being having i ain't nothing's wrong nothing's wrong you know i'm just i'm just like everybody else i'm normal it's fine yeah. no 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 you know and that that's you know, one of these things that, especially living as a person of color, you have to really be on guard just in general. Yeah. And then on top of that, recognizing that you have to act as your own organ. <laughs> you have to, yeah. you have to be in charge of your own organs, you know? Yeah. And, you know, not everybody really can understand how that, how that translates into how we live, how we see ourselves, how we are open or closed, you know, to possibilities. Um, and to, you know, I mean, like, you know, some folks are just taking, like we're, we were just talking about um, having a job just for the insurance. And, you know, I'm in a place of privilege as an academic professor, because, you know, I have this thing called, you know, tenure. And now I'm the chair of the department and, you know, like I'm, I'm kind of good, you know? And when I talk to young people who have diabetes and a lot of them struggled in school because they're, you know, brown, they're, uh, they're queer and they're type one diabetic or whatever, you know, and they're type one diabetic. And that whole process of just existing with, these beepers, pages, technology, you know, the, the questions, the answers, the the problems, the solutions, you know, a lot of them struggle in school because school is not a welcoming place for them anyway. Right. And, you know, so then having to work and not having, you know, a space to work at their potential, you know, like that can kill a spirit, not only a body, you know, that's, that really, And this is what I, you know, really am grateful for of being able to be a part of this time in which, you know, we are really doing some healing work just by being ourselves, by just existing and having these conversations. Yeah. That is such a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is. It's, um, it's really freeing to me. I don't know, sometimes maybe I think too much. But because especially I think about I reminisce over the past. Mm. Um, I look at stuff like watching old episodes of Soul Train or mm. just looking at old movies um, before Spike Lee um, mm-hmm. was making movies in the 80s. <laughs> when you look back at an old uh, Melvin Van Peebles movie or something, mm. there was, there was a freeness 
that even though we were still catching hell, there was a freeness that we could actually be us. There's, there was there was something, the beauty of being able to wear your hair out and I'm just, just as loud as you wanted to be. You didn't, you didn't have to hold your head down anymore. And it was something freeing about that, just seeing that on television. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was just a kid during the 70s, but then the 80s mm-hmm. came along and you kind of saw that again, uh, that resurgence of uh, black awareness of, especially when, um, like when hip hop came along and mm-hmm. when that black ownership, yeah, the black ownership, black ownership. yeah, you, it was, it wasn't so much that we were trying to be separate from anybody else or to, uh, keeping anybody out, but we were basically coming to our own to where we didn't have to be ashamed of our own anymore. Mm-hmm. We're starting to learn more about all these black entrepreneurs. You started yes. understanding what it meant to have a magazine like Black Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And finally, the importance of seeing Johnson Publications and what they provided and mm-hmm. seeing your face on magazines and then eventually seeing your face on magazine or, you know, magazine covers and then on television. And in a way, I think we were kind of losing ground in that, uh, but it's still there. It's mm-hmm. just, I'd like to see more of it. And now this is this is one of the things why I, I wanted to create this podcast, because I wanted to bring um, more of that into diabetes advocacy. Because I've mm-hmm. always said it's like if, it could, if a disease affects us at the, uh, and the numbers that it affects us, we need to be more involved in presenting this information to our communities because oftentimes we can go on social media, which is pretty much social media has become the CNNs and the CBSs, the NBCs of, of the 21st century. That's, that's our, it's not a, just a platform where everybody can go and just trade pictures. This is where people are getting their information now. And so there's a lot of disinformation out there. So I think we have to put forth these platforms to try and get us back on track to give us the good information. You know, we've been. Yeah. And multiple, multiple, you know, this is why it's, it's so important, you know, to have multiple platforms for these conversations. Mm -hmm. It cannot just be one voice. It cannot be the same voice or, um, you know, voices that always align, you know, we have to have, you know, a diversity within, you know, our diversity. And this is, you know, why it it does, it is so difficult and it does take so long, but, you know, the reward is so big because, you know, we, we need to hear each other in, you know, a a really um, deep way. And the only way to do that is by hearing multiple voices and, and catching, you know, the ear of a, a diversity of people. Right. And, you know, I think, you know, we're, we're going to see more of that happening and more of it growing because, you know, like over the summer, as we saw, you know, there's a lot of racists out there who are diabetic and it's easy to forget that. Cause you're like, Oh, unity for our pancreases, but yeah, you got a black pancreas. Oh no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. No, and that, no. um, Maybe I'm just jaded, but none of that even surprised me. Yeah, no, it's not a surprise, but it's a, it's a wake up call. Mm -hmm. It was like, yeah, wake up. 
wake up. You know, you, you see, and we, you and I, we talked about this, you know, I think at healthy voices too. Yeah. And, you know, because it is very clear, you know, that we have made ourselves, we have inserted ourselves. Right. And it wasn't that, you know, we were, you know, we, we had to do the work to insert ourselves and to make sure that we, you know, pulled others up, you know, with us. And, you know, that's, that's a kind of, that's a level of work and a level of, you know, community action that is, you know, you, you, you know, in some ways you take for granted because that is what our community is like, but then you forget that, that, like I said before, these whiteness does not question whiteness. Whiteness does not challenge whiteness. Mm -hmm. Whiteness cannot look at itself in the mirror, (laughs) you know, and, you know, we and that is why we have to do you know we end up doing that extra work and it's tiring it's so tiring and that's why it's so painful too for a lot of people because they see how much work that they're doing and then folks are like you know basically throwing that out the window acting as though you know our identity has nothing to do with how we live with a disease that requires a daily devotion a moment by moment devotion. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and some of you that are listening don't um, may not remember what uh, we're talking about. I've talked about it a couple of other episodes is um, uh, last year after the murders of um, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, there, um, there became a, a reach out movement uh, by many uh, diabetes organizations and other health organizations to try and reach out to people of our advocates of color to get our insight, our, our opinions on to showcase our stories on uh, whether it be social media or on their uh, various platforms. And at one point, <clears throat> one organization uh, showcased um, some of our female advocates um, writings by which they just were flat out, uh, attacked on social media by uh, many of that organization's followers. Many of probably who had uh, were affected by type one diabetes are just um, uh, were caregivers of type one diabetes, and it, and you they got that same old hit of well, diabetes doesn't see color. I don't see color. It is you know, that that old tune um, that gets to be. <laughs> chewed up well and it ran the gamut it ran the gamut though to like you know real hatefulness of like how dare you how dare you suggest that your color influences you know this this thing and you know there are so many studies that show how oppression affects the body the stressors of the body, right? You know, there are so many trauma, post-traumatic stress, childhood traumatic, all of these studies, which white people love to name for themselves, they actually do apply to uh, all humans. And, you know, the trauma and stress of being a person of color right here and now in this world is causing stress. And, a, a, a level of stress that, you know, we haven't experienced, we've seen, you know, we've always lived with it, but it's amplified right now. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, we're, we're all, you know, seeing a lot of things and, and, you know, I have my, you know, Dexcom on my phone. And so I'm always looking at my phone. You're always getting updates. You're always, you know, you're encountering this news all the time. And, you know, you have to be very, very careful and and really think about your self-preservation in order to just look at the news these days as a person of color. Yeah. And that kind of stress and trauma, you know, like diabetics, you can watch your numbers go up. You just you just look at the news and you have your Dexcom, you will see that number tick up. Yeah. And, you know, people don't understand how or they diminish. You know, I think that's really even the most painful thing is being diminished. Yeah. And that that I have to agree because I have seen that so much. Um. I started serving on the DNI uh, committee at on my job, and when I see coworkers post stuff on, say, Facebook without giving any regard to the fact that they that they're friends with two or three black people from work, yeah, you know you're friends with them in, at work, but all of a sudden when you post something um, idiotic, how am I supposed to believe that you just did that without thinking? Yeah. You know, and, well, no, because it's racist. And, it, you know, we're talking about, you know, racism, homophobia, these these fears that people are not thinking around. And that is why they're idiots. Yeah. <laughs> That's why they become idiots. Right. Because they do not think because we don't even you know, I just saw something on the news where, you know, some some white guy was is like protesting the school because they taught black history <laughs> you know and it's like really we you you don't even want to learn that we have been here like you because you all really do dismiss us you you know create you know this world in which we should just be happy with being invisible ain't nobody happy with being invisible Mm-mm. you aren't happy you aren't happy with being invisible else you right. be whining to us to, to quote, give you a break. Like <laughs> on, Facebook, on Facebook. Trying to let everybody see you. I'm surprised. I didn't know I owed you a break. Right. <laughs> you should have sent me a letter. Let me know that you would require a break. <laughs> and be specific about what you need a break in. Because mm-hmm. social media is like, it's, um it is, it has boggled my mind ever since I got on it. You know, I think personally, I think social media is the one thing that has destroyed the class reunion. <laughs> you have no, there's no use. There ain't no use for it anymore. <laughs> Plus, you know how all these people you went to high school or college with that know how the way they think is like, I ain't trying to get in a room with that asshole. Right. I, I hope I never you see him again. You didn't want to be there in the first time, place. No, nah, I didn't want to be there. The food sucks. All of y'all look ugly. You, you gained all that weight. I don't want to see you no way because I've seen all your baby pictures and everything else you put on Facebook. Then come the election, you put all that foolishness on there. No, I don't like mm-hmm. you no more. Yes, right. we used to hang. We used to go get drink beer, run the streets, all that stuff in high school. But right now, I hope I never see you again. <laughs> right now, I have options. Yeah, I have options. I, I have, have options. Other options. I can unfollow. I can right. unfriend. <laughs> yes. If I need to know, and I ask. Really, if I need to know, I yes. ask your cousin because me and me and your cousin are tight. But, right. 
Right. You on well, and hand. it even allows you to, you know, say for family reunions, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Then you suddenly are like, oh no, I see how you be. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. He, oh, <laughs> yeah, because that was in laws. In laws. Exactly. <laughs> that was the whole thing for like for Thanksgiving. It's like, well, who who would you vote for? Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who's coming? Let's preempt this with a little Google search on yeah. your, your your history. Find out. Let's see. Go to his likes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What groups? Is yeah, there? I uh-huh. see you. I yeah. see you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is Raymond coming? To th- I ain't coming. I ain't coming. <laughs> no, I ain't like, coming. I don't care who cooked yeah. what. Right. Save me a plate. I'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> For real. I'll bring my own aluminum foil. Tell us though, what was what is your diagnosis story? Because um, I always this is one of the things I always ask uh, guests mm-hmm. is that diagnosis story because that's that's sort of like everybody with diabetes. That's like our that's our our, our business card. It's like you know, yeah. What was your diagnosis story? Our origin story. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, you know, I I can't talk about my diabetes without talking about my mother's diabetes. Um. And that introduction into diabetes and she was when she was you know undiagnosed for many years and then misdiagnosed as type 2 and this was back in the 90s you know and she was an executive at uh Xerox you know and she would tell me about how she would be you know in these high power meetings and then she would just go into her office and like lay her head on the desk and just be exhausted you know you know that feeling when your yeah. sugar is so high mm-hmm. and you are just, you know, putting on a show for somebody or, you know, just trying to push through. And then when it's time, you you just can't even keep your eyes open. And so finally, maybe about five years into her type two diagnosis, someone diagnosed her as type one. They finally did a beta cell test on her. And you know, in the way that I think they explained it to her or they didn't explain it to her, um, you know, she had the impression that she gave it to herself right. for a long time. Right. And that because she didn't do this, that and the other, like they told her when they told her she was type two, you know, it was her fault. When in reality, that all that blame is on the medical you know, community who served her. Right. And so for years, we also, my sister and I also perpetuated this method of thinking, right? And, you know, we had zero clue and understanding around what she was going through. So then probably around 2002, I started having, you know, just things that started happening in my body. And, you know, I was in my late 20s, mid to late 20s. And I just kind of was like, well, maybe I'm just changing or maybe, you know, like, I didn't know. And I let it go for a long time because I was, I didn't have health insurance. I was in grad school. And then after grad school, I went and worked at a writing retreat, which, you know, did not provide much money or insurance. It was very important for my writing career. But, you know, definitely kept me from probably getting the right diagnosis. Right. And then finally, um, a lot of things started happening, like, you know, passing out, um, you know, just you know, all the things, you know. And one day I was at a writing retreat in in Seattle, near Seattle, and I walked in the woods for a long time. 
And then I, I went and I got, it was, you know, Washington state. So I went and I got some cherries and I ate them. And then I threw up like everywhere. (laughs) And I was, I, I didn't, I thought, you know, like I, it felt like worse than being drunk. Like I was just, I couldn't get my mind together. I was, you know, I don't even know how I got myself together to get on a bus to go back to the writing retreat. Now, now this was on an island off of Seattle. So you, you know, there was only one road. So you would get the bus and then they would drop you off somewhere near the woods where you would have to walk through the woods (laughs) to get back to your little cabin. So I had to do all of that. And, you know, thank God I made it, you know? And finally I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to see, you know, a doctor. And I got my money together. I, I almost crashed the car on the way to the doctor. Um, and because I would just be falling asleep everywhere, you know, I would, I'd be driving and just fall, (laughs) fall asleep and, um, not be able to keep my eyes open for long. And so finally she took like 10 vials. She listened to my, she said, let me take a little bit of blood. She took 10 vials and thank God she was thorough. And, you know, they called me the next day and they were like, you're a type one diabetic. You need to go to the hospital right now. And I was like, what? And now I had paid cash for this. So there was no more money to go to an emergency room. Like I didn't, I was like, how would I even begin to think about paying for that? And I got student loans. Oh Lord, (laughs) like, please, please let a black woman live. Okay. And you know, I, she understood my situation and she said, okay, well, I'm going to see if I can call in some favors. And she did. And she got me to see a nurse practitioner and an endocrinologist. And I waited almost a week and these people were calling me. They were looking at my numbers and they were like, you have to be in a hospital. And I was like, I'm not going, I'm not going. I am Mm. not going. And finally, my dad had to come up because it was in Connecticut. My dad had to come from Pennsylvania, Connecticut to take me to this doctor because I was definitely going to have to be because I just could not believe it. I could not believe it. And, you know, I had even done research, you know, on my symptoms and all the time it would bring up diabetes, type one, type two, whatever. And I was like, no, 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 it's cancer. It's definitely cancer, you know. Because I would have rather have had cancer, Chelsea, than have diabetes. Oh, wow. And when you think about, you know, in my mind, you know, because I saw what my mother was going through. In my mind, it was like, it cannot be this thing that I have done to myself because I had been living so healthy. Mm. I was living so clean. I was, you know, losing weight. Come to find out diabetes you know and um you know so in that moment of you know being at this doctor being shown how to use needles in maybe a 20 minute session i got all of my diabetes training in a 20 minute session wow and you know suddenly had to change all of my world to feed this monster yeah, and that's that's the reality of it that is, that is the reality yeah. of it man. No, yeah yeah it is now as far as your professional background you, now you mm-hmm. alluded that you are a writer mm-hmm. you're also an educator 
Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that, please. Yes. Um, well, so I I have four books um, that were published between 2009 and 2014, um, all for young adults or children. Um, I've won the Ezra Jack Keats Award and a couple of other awards because um, I wrote mainly historical fiction. That's always been my interest is history. And um, so I ended up, you know, and I always, you know, taught. And when I was in grad school, you know, thank God I was able to go to grad school um, before I had my diabetes debt to pay for. <laughs> um, but um I, you know, I, I studied young adult and children's literature and I knew I would probably teach. I had always been teaching, educating. Um, so an opportunity came up uh, for me. So I never really wanted to be an academic. I liked teaching, but I didn't necessarily see myself as having a career as an academic because that just wasn't what I really, I mean, I had thought about it in, in an abstract, but, you know, so when I got a job, um, at my college, Medgar Evers College in Brooklyn, New York, CUNY, um, Joe Panthers. Um, <laughs> we, you know, it, it was definitely, it's a whole, that's a whole other chapter. Um, and struggling with self-advocacy, um, asking for, um, you know, accommodations, dealing with discrimination, um, and from within my own community, because it's a predominantly black college, um, I realized that I was not the only one who had these kinds of stigmas around diabetes, right. you know, like, um, so my career has just, you know, like, <laughs> you know, we all, we all are working for this health insurance and this, you know, and our, you know, money for the creative things that we do, you know, my money goes to paint right now paint paint supplies paint tools even a canvas right and food you know and insulin and you know the 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 job the capitalist system right that we have to live through here uh, requires us to you know pay our dues to have you know our little trinkets and you know so in, in many ways, it, it's, it is that, but it also is a space where I'm beginning to start to integrate my conversations about diabetes um, into a more academic space. Right. And, you know, that is something that is, you know, incredibly important. You know, I'm about to start serving on an advisory board for um, the medical humanities program at CUNY. Um, in the medical school. And so I will be in conversation with, you know, doctors and, and folks who write narrative medicine, who write about, you know, the, the personal narratives of healing and healthcare. Um, and that is such a, you know, unique space to be able to, you know, have one's voice heard right. and to, you know, and, and I never would have dreamt this, you know, back in, you know, the day. And I would have never have thought to integrate any of this, you know, into my work back in the day either. Um, but, you know, my work as a researcher, you know, in, in, into history um, has given me an interesting perspective on, you know, the black community 
and you know just healthcare in general, and you know, but especially diabetes, um, and even more so type one diabetes. Right. Yeah, that's that is amazing. That is um that is amazing. I mean, you you are truly a. <laughs> I like to always like to use that hungry jack biscuit uh, analogy <laughs> of like all these different layers that that that, um, that you encompass. So yeah, that is that is amazing. Um, and you got a. You have a uh, diabetes service dog, my man. Yes. Yes. Well, and this was all a part of that, that academic experience Mm -hmm. in which, you know, I have the power of a union, you know, behind me and, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, in New York, we definitely have um, a lot more protection than in many other States. And, um, you know, when I realized how, so I had a, a class where, and I always tell my students in the beginning, listen, I have this thing. I might act weird in the middle of talking. <laughs> if you see me acting weird, ask me if I'm okay, you know, because sometimes it would happen. And this was before Dexcom, you know, before yeah. I was doing any of that, before I was even on a pump. So um, one day I was in class and, you know, I was like, I feel like. You know, I'm literally in the middle of delivering a lecture and I'm thinking in my mind, I feel like I'm floating (laughs) and, you know, I didn't have any sort of, you know, realization that, you know, that was even because my blood sugar was fluctuating. Right. right? And, you know, and I think at that time I did have a Dexcom. Yes. In fact, because this is what happened. Um, I had a Dexcom, but I wasn't used to the sounds that it made, you know, right. the little one, that, that first one. And I started yelling because I was in this moment of, I, I believe I was bottoming. Yeah, I must have been bottoming out. Um, I started yelling at the students about leaving their phones on in class. <laughs> and I was like, who's got their phone? And they were like, Professor, no one's got a phone on. <laughs> you're, you're telling us something and we're trying to listen. And I was like, what? And then it dawned on me, oh, oh, shit, it's me. And, you know, everybody gets up. (laughs) It's me. It's me. Oh, my God, it says that I'm about to die. Oh, let me sit down. And, you know, students are running out of the room going to the, you know, the snack machines. What do we get you? Has any Welch's fruit snacks? Just give me some Welch's fruit snacks. And, you know, it was uh, a wake-up call for me that, you know, it, it couldn't, it, there needed to be another layer right. to my, because, you know, like if you're spending that much time lecturing, talking, you cannot be constantly, well, now, you know, it's a little bit easier if the Dexcom is on your phone, you know? Yeah. But if you don't have that or you don't have, you know, your, you know, your pump, right? You're still on MBI. You're still taking shots when you don't know when things are going to happen, right? You really do have to have some kind of, of system for your protection. Right. And so, you know, I'd always wanted to train. I, I had a dog when I was a kid, but I always wanted to really have a trained dog, a dog that worked, you know? And so the idea, you know, I just started researching, you know, of, of what it took to get a service dog. Right. And to, to train them oneself because, I had seen plenty of ads for, you know, people wanting to take 20,000 of your dollars to train a dog for you. 
And then I had heard the horror stories of when people had given 20,000 of their dollars to some company to train. And turns out that that dog didn't bond with them, didn't, you know, have the correct training or missed its family, you know, that it had been trained with. And now was like, who are you? You know, like, I'm not doing this shit with you, you know? (laughs) So, you know, I I realized that training him myself was probably going to be the best way. And it it was, and I took, I was able to take a year off of work just because I have, I was burnt out. I was burnt out. My body was burnt out. Everything was burnt out. I was about to start using a pump for the first time. And, um, you know, it was just, it kind of gave me a discipline and ritual around my response to my diabetes. Cause I still forget, you know, you still, you in the middle of doing something and you're like, oh, I know it's going down, but let me just finish this. Right. And, you know, and I'll, and I'll get in a second. And then it's an hour later and you're like, I can't stand up. <laughs> what happened? Mm-hmm. And, you know, he doesn't let me forget, you know, right. he's, he's going to be, you know, there for me in a way that, you know, I can't always be there for myself. Right. And, you know, that's, that's a, you know, and it really is not that hard to do, to train these dogs to, to smell for insulin. It's really not that hard. You can do it at home. You know, and, you know, black people love their dogs. And, you know, if we all, you know, just even if it's not like in a professional sense where the dog is out in public working, but to, you know, utilize this, you know, this ability that the dog might have, maybe the dog has it, maybe he doesn't, you know, but, you know, if you train your own, it definitely is way more cost efficient. Um, You can write it off on your taxes as a medical device. Um, you know, he goes with me everywhere. Right. He he's flown. I um, you know, conducted I I a ceremony, a wedding ceremony. He was there, you know, in California. <laughs> you know, like this dog goes places. As soon as Corona is over, we're going uh, to go visit our friends in Amsterdam. Yeah, we are out of here. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he um he is efficient. Because he even checked me when I first met him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you, you check your thing, bro. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. He knows. Oh, he had a great time around all the diabetics. He was like, you <laughs> give you, me a treat. You <laughs> give me a treat. You give me a treat. <laughs> you over there. Come here. I smell you. I smell you. Oh, you don't think you're diabetic? You is now. <laughs> I'll, I'll be watching you in a minute. Keep on. Yeah, I, I wondered about yeah. trying to train my dogs like that, but they, I don't know. Some of my dogs seem to be rather vindictive sometimes. He's probably going to let me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You remember that time when he go for a walk? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to let you yeah. sit. Go on, sit on down. Yeah. Keep watching TV. Have some popcorn. Oh, mm-hmm. go ahead. Yeah. No, Bubble gets an attitude too. He does. Oh, really? He does get an attitude. Because like he'll be warning me or something. And he knows when I, I, you know, he knows he sees the device. He knows the process that has to happen right. in order for him to get a treat or for my sugar to change. And so he will, if I ignore him, he looks at me like, you, what, what do you think I'm out here lying? You think I'm out here lying to you? This ain't no game. (laughs) This is my job, mommy. I'm just trying to get paid out here. Just trying to get paid in treats. Okay. I ain't no slay dog. This is what I do. (laughs) I don't pull slays. I ain't, I ain't no, this ain't, I ain't, I ain't, I ain't no golden retriever. 
You know, I ain't gonna, <laughs> I ain't gonna jump up, play basketball, like in the movies and stuff. It's real. This life. It's real. It's real. And it's hard out here for Bobo. Yeah. Yeah. It is. He does get an attitude. Yeah, I like Bobo. He's he's a cool dog, man. He's yes. a real cool dog. Yes, he is. He's everybody's friend. <laughs> he is everybody's friend. Serious. <laughs> Serious. Um, how do I segue into this? Because like, because I wanted to talk more about marginalized folks and diabetes. Mm. Um. And when I say, mar- and, I, and I use the term marginalized because I'm not just talking about people of color. I'm talking about um, the gay community, the, the, the trans community, the, the, the whole gamut. And, I, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I've always wondered as to how, because obviously we've talked to no end about how diabetes affects people of color. But I've never, mm-hmm. un- I've never taken, had the opportunity to learn more about how it affects um people of different sexual orientations or how, yeah. how that, how that comes in that mix. And I, that's something I wanted to learn more about, but to base, you know, there's nothing more than to, to, to speak on, on the podcast, but I want to, I want to enlighten myself. Mm. You know, I mm-hmm. want to become smarter because <clears throat> I don't think I can truly be an effective advocate until I understand or try to at mm. least understand and listen to other mm. um perspectives because I'm going to try, I want to be an advocate for everybody. So I need to understand the perspective so I can speak on it and not, you know, sound like I'm just totally just pulling something out of the ear type of thing. Well, another component to that is, you know, is being able to listen. And, and I always say, you know, acceptance is an open heart. You know, if you want to accept people for who they are, then you really have to work on keeping your heart open. And, you know, not only asking questions or speaking out, but, you know, listening, you know, and, and deep listening and, and also asking for and forgiving when misunderstandings arise, arise, you know, I mean, like, I think this is the thing that people, you know, we talk about anything, you know, that is, you know, left of center, um, or right of center, um, you know, we, we forget that, you know, that, that place of vulnerability is crucial. You know, it's crucial for understanding to really happen. And if you, you know, come to these spaces with like, oh, well, you know, you know, but just, just with closed ears or even half open ears, you know, you, you're not going to get what you, what you really could get the, the full potential. Right. And, you know, it's like you were talking about with the biscuit, you know, it's another deeper layer of the biscuit. And, you know, it takes either because there are there are different ways to eat a biscuit. Am I right, Chelsea? Indeed. You know, there are people who just take a bite and they just move on. And then there are those of us who like to peel the layers and eat it layer by layer. And, you know, when you understand that, you know, these are perspectives and ways, you know, a metaphoric way, you know, to approach, um, you know, learning about and healing, you know, old wounds that have nothing to do really with, you know, as us as individuals until we decide to um, adhere to one way or another. Right. Right. Um, or we, you know, get into a space where we cannot see anyone else's side. Right. And, you know, I think, you know, just as we talked about, you know, 
racism and how it affects us in terms of stress and, and oppression just in general, how it affects stress. Environment affects your stress levels. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are living in a sunny, you know, uh, suburb and your parents are doctors and you're a type one diabetic, that's a very different experience for some kid, you know, growing up in Detroit you know, or let's even say, you know, in Syria, you know, where, where there's literally bombs raining down, you know, like, so, you know, this layer of, you know, of being queer or being gay or being trans, um, it is another space where you feel like you have to protect yourself. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I think, you know, there's, you know, there's, you know, it's all intersectional, right? Like it's all about, you know, I, you know, I just got a lot more roadways meeting at the crossroads than, yeah. than others, you know? And, you know, I, I have to learn too. I have to, you know, there are things that I don't know, even as having a lived experience, I don't know what it's like to be trans and I right. cannot say that I do. And I cannot, I can't speak for others. Right. Um, but, you know, I do know that the, the depth of our personal struggles to live our lives fully is obviously going to affect how we deal with our physical health. Right. And, you know, without, just like we were saying, without having a visible community, you feel incredibly isolated. So then if you're, if you're a person of color and you're queer and you're diabetic, you know, you get again buried under. You know, you can. It's it's not that it has to be that way, but you could get buried. You know, under all of those layers. Yeah. Um. And you know, people can. You know, like we were saying, be, dismiss you, just dismiss your humanity, just based on you know what they think. You know, you are, or what they don't think you are, or what they what they um, actually want you to be. Mm, and then the story about what they want you to be. Yes. That's, yes. that's the one that, that cuts me to no end is like, cause that's what I, I think that's what I kind of just see right off the bat is like so many people just want us. And when I say us, I don't just mean black folks. I'm talking about, they want the Asian community. They want the gay community. They want mm. to be a certain thing to make them comfortable. And we yeah. as marginalized people, we've been spending the better part of our lives in this country. And I'm speaking of this country and as well as, you know, all over the world, we've been spending the better part of our lives fluffing everybody's pillow, making mm-hmm. them comfortable with us. Mm-hmm. Asking mm-hmm. to be accepted for just our humanity. Yeah. And see, and that that's the thing that um that got me um really talking about um representation as it pertains to all these different diabetes organizations and, mm-hmm. and groups is like, you talk a good game, but you're not showing me anything. Yeah. You know? And, and then like what ha- what happened last summer is once <laughs> you open that can of worms, you run and hide by shutting it down, thinking that was going to keep people from thinking that was going to solve anything. All you mm-hmm. did, you just saw exactly the ugly that's there. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. can't hide from it. You can't, you definitely can't erase it because what's going to happen is it's going to come back again. Yeah. 
And, yeah. you know, and the whole thing that I encourage any new advocate of color that I come across are advocates of a marginalized group. Don't be afraid to just create your own platform mm, because yeah. it's too easy now. Make your own space. Yeah. It's too you easy. Insert yourself. Yeah. It's just insert too easy. Insert yourself. You know, we, I like to, you know, always quote that saying by Shirley Chisholm. If you know, if you're not invited to yeah. the table, bring a chair. My thing is, you, you, you can't bring a chair to make your own table. You make know, that your own whole table. thing. Yeah. And that's where we are now. And, um, and of course we'll get, we'll get, you know, criticized for that as well. You know, once you start creating your own tables, your own spaces, well, all y'all just, they just want to be separate. You know, they just don't, don't want to. And it's fine. Go, yeah. go, go back to your own table, make your own table. Okay. You, 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 you're welcome to come and have a seat and try my kind of potato salad. Cause I know it's different than yours. Yeah. And you know, uh, if you like it, great. Stay. If not move on, that's cool. Yeah. You and know? I- and, and that's, I think the problem is that they, they, you know, again, it goes back to not examining, not have being having to ex- examine or justify oneself, one's right. existence. So, um, we were sitting here basically just chatting it up here, and I hadn't hit record yet. So, um, we were we we're basically in the middle of talking about um, health disparities as it pertains to people of color. Um, I here's the thing that gets me, and it's and it's going back to this whole thing with. Uh, the JDRF last summer. Why is that so hard for folks to, to just, all we are asking people is to accept the truth. The truth is what it is, you know, and the JDRF, JDRF, they, they, they see these negative comments coming in and they just shut the whole thing down thinking that's going to solve it. But, Really, that does that does absolutely nothing. But I don't understand why is it so hard for people just to accept our truth. And I, and I know that's kind of a broad statement because when we're talking about race, I mean that's a I mean that goes in so many different directions, um, economics, politics, you know, anything. And but you know we're talking about health disparities. And when we try to speak our truth, it oftentimes just gets muted or just shut down altogether and not necessarily by the organization. It's just by other people who like us, who either have diabetes or actually are caregivers of either children or family members who have diabetes. And I don't understand why these folks have such a hard time accepting the truth. Now, I got my own theory. I'm, I'm going to hear yours and then I, then I might toss mine out there because mine's going to be okay, kind of an unpopular uh, opinion. But uh, Right. Well, you know, I mean, there, there are so many reasons, Chelsea, you know, I mean, I think this is the, this is the, the issue. Um, you know, our, our impulse, you know, is to want to only see the similarities and, you know, when you, when you start to peel back the layers, right, and you recognize that there are differences that may leave you out of the similarities, it is very, very easy for folks to feel hurt, confused, right? Mm-hmm. Because they don't recognize, like, they want all the variety in their garden. Right. Like right. you, you want to, you want to plant a, a garden and it's just, you know, 
uh, red peppers. How are you going to eat all that? You know, like, unless that is your business. And, and even then, it's not good for the soil, right? right? You have to have diversity. But people don't want to accept that in humans because we're told that we're, we're all the same. We're all the same. And, you know, this happens also in queer communities. You know, this is the same thing that happens in queer communities. Um, there was an incident where, um, you know, well, it's not, the, it's not the same, but it, there is this sort of in people making assumptions that people who are different are really just the same. Right. And, you know, that if you have, you know, some sort of difference, like, you know, even even talking about, you know, when I when we did that panel on um, Black Queer T1D, you know, people were like, oh, you know, I didn't even think about, you know, trans people having diabetes. <laughs> it was like, well, <laughs> they're people, <laughs> you know, like they're, they're people. Just, we're people. We're all people here. And, you know, the the very notion of of opening up, you know, that mirror. And, you know, showing them that, you know, it is, it is really about them. It's not about yeah. us. They really don't like that. People don't like that. Right. People get hurt. And, you know, because Americans are so poorly educated on race, race history, race politics, systemic race, racism versus, you know, one kid calling another kid nigger on the street, you know, like. There are so many nuances and there's no one answer. There's no easy, simplified answer. And, you know, we, this is complicated. You know, when we threw, it, it's one thing if we've been seeing young black men being shot in the street with no guns for a, for a very long time. Right. Right. But add a pandemic onto that fire and boom, you know, people's perceptions and tolerance of it is very different. And, you know, I think it's important that we <laughs> actually appreciate sometimes some of these people in their denial because, you know, it is now obviously time that they are woken up and it has to have a shakeup in order for us to, you know, create new spaces of understanding yeah. and acceptance. Right. Yeah. And, and of course, like I said, my opinion is that folks choose to get butthurt about this because, and I just see so many white people that just can't understand. It's not an accusation. We're just stating the facts. We're not saying that every, every white person is racist. We're just stating the fact is that racism exists, that systemic racism existed and it still exists. That doesn't mean that all of you are the perpetrators of it. Maybe your ancestors were or not, but you don't know anything about that. We're not blaming you. We're basically stating the fact that it exists. But folks choose to get butthurt like we, like we came up right to their house and told them. It's like, excuse me. Oh, yeah, we just want to let you know. I find that you are racist. And, there's, mm -hmm. and we don't care what you think. Good day. But it's... Well, mm, yeah. and But I think it... Actually, we do have to get to the place where we say, yes, actually, every every white person is racist and they have to unlearn it. 
and every black person is racist and we have to unlearn it. Right. And, you know, it has literally because it, it is it starts very early in schools. It starts very early in these spaces in which we are interacting. You know, all of the things that society, the pitfalls of society, we don't like to think that we actually train ourselves and our children for it. We like to think that because we don't talk about it or we gloss over it or we give a very lighthearted view of it, um, that at least, you know, well, at least we, we said something. And, you know, the problem is, is that, you know, and this is also, again, this, this relates to diabetes and the the complicated nature of this disease, Mm -hmm. that it's not just, you know, cake, it is 1010 other things. And if you only want to see it as a disease about sugar, then you don't, you're ignorant. Yeah. So if you only see racism as something that other people are a part of, then you then the system will never, ever, you know, be healed. Right. And, you know, we're seeing now it's just like when you see how they how they are shooting the the rioters um, in Minneapolis versus how (laughs) things went down at the Capitol building. Right. Right. Like, and how they were told to not use force, right? But on these people, extreme force must be used. Right, right. Yeah, and... Then it's all of us, because it's at the highest level of our government. Right. It has nothing to do with individuals at this point. It is at the highest level of government. Right. And I, I really don't care who is in uh, uh, power at this time, because we were seeing... You know, um, all kinds of things when Obama was president, yeah, exactly. you know, it, it's not like we're immune to it. We have a, a, a systemic issue that we have to consciously unlearn. And when you ask people to consciously unlearn every almost everything that they understand, right? they are they can they're they're not very many are are, are fearless enough to do it. And, you know, even, you know, during last summer, I had a white friend tell me that, you know, she comes from a very racist family. And she told me, you know, well, you know, I got some of my family together to, um, to read, you know, some, you know, anti-racism books. And she said, well, but, you know, one was just too shaming. So we couldn't, you know, watch it. We couldn't read it together. No one. And I was like, Wow, if you even understood a fraction of the shame that we feel just for existing. Like, oh, was it too much? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and it's, you know, it's so, it's so interesting. Like, you know, the, like how people have beef between type one and type two diabetes, you know, like, oh, well, you don't understand, you know, like, oh, you just got to take a pill. I got to be hooked up to 14 different machines and get a dog, you know? (laughs) And, you know, there's this feeling of that we, I think, especially in our culture in America of my pain or my success. So my pain is greater than your pain. My success um, is because I worked hard for it. Right. Yet in reality, most of the time, your pain is just as equal to my pain 
And your success was built upon other people who handed you things, no matter what race you are. Right. This is the, this is the nature of capitalism. Yeah. And, you know, we're in a system that, you know, is the, the link between capitalism and the medical industrial complex um, and the food industry. You know, these are deeply rooted in colonialist racist practices. And, you know, they're meant to have a hierarchy of black at the bottom, white at the top. Right. And if people are not willing to see and accept that that is the that is the constant and not just in America, it is the constant everywhere. Mm -hmm. Why do you think, you know, in Asia, you know, when a lot of times when people go to Korea, when people of color go to Korea, they have a very hard time. They have a, I wanted to teach English in Korea many years ago and, you know, they wanted to see my picture. Oh, I guess you're light skinned enough to, to not scare the kids. Right. Um, you know, one black kid who I knew who, you know, had just graduated college. He went there to teach for a year, got beat up, um, on the street and then, and they just left. People just left him there. And, you know, dark skin phobia is, is historic, mm -hmm. right? It's historic. And then it's just amplified by this social construct called racism. Yeah. And, and, and like you said, the dark skin phobia, that, that doesn't just apply to light skin, black folks and dark skin, black folks. It applies to dark skin yep. Asians and light skin yep. Asians. Yep. Um, my wife is Filipino and she's told me a lot about, Oh yeah. Uh, there's a there's a level there's classism in the Philippines uh -huh. as far as like they literally using and this goes from the Philippines to to China to Japan they're using skin whiteners. Oh yeah. To keep their skin light so mm -hmm. as not to look darker. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's the kind of thing like like you said it comes down to education because folks in America don't even that doesn't even register with them. Most people don't even understand that there is a there is a tense relationship between African American community and the Asian community, Asian American community. Yeah. A lot of it yeah. having to do with simply nothing but economics. Yes. That the that and the, opportunity and opportunities because the the Asian owned businesses oftentimes get put right in the black community. Yeah. Whereas they won't hire black people to work in the stores, nor and plus when you when you're talking about uh, hair care products, they've got that monopolized so much to where it's hard for black people to even come in to start a hair care business to, to build in their own communities. Right. Because they're not offered those loans and opportun business opportunities, right. you know, um, in the bank. Right. And, you know, if, you know, the banking system, I mean, we, we you can't, because because now housing is becoming even more of an issue you see all kinds of things about how black people are given different quotes for houses than white people mm -hmm. or how, um, you know, a black couple will be, um, there was one where a black couple, the inspector told them everything was fine. He never even looked around. The, they had like footage. He didn't even look around the house. He just told, oh, yeah, yeah, fine. And, you know, or, you know, it's, it's a, it's a deep level of access, you know, redlining. This is what I'm, this is exactly what we're saying. You know, like diabetes and race are both incredibly complex things. They're, they're not for easy answers. They're not for the faint of heart, really. 
you got to have, you know, real chutzpah to, you know, keep your head up around, you know, these two things. Right. So when they meet, you know, and then, you know, also, or, you know, conflated by other, you know, identity or racial, social, economic class issues, you know, there is, we've been set up for being less likely to succeed. And then we are blamed for not succeeding. So, you know, it is very easy to sort of want to believe that, you know, we're, we're all just, we're all okay. We're, we're all just, you know, the disease is really what, you know, connects us and that's all that matters, you know, that's not true. Yeah. And you know, this discussion we're having right now, it comes right. This is funny that it, that we're talking about this because literally before I we logged on here to continue this conversation, I was watching a documentary. I haven't quite finished it. I think it's got maybe like five or six minutes left in it. Um, I don't know if you saw it or not. There's a documentary on Amazon Prime called Uncle Tom, mm-hmm. and it's basically about it, black conservatism. Yeah, and. Is this so much of it that has my mind going back and forth? Because I've never thought that black conservatives were completely crazy because, and I think it's Mm -hmm. because of my own upbringing and my age. Mm. Um, As far as my upbringing, my great grandfather and grandfather, they were both entrepreneurs. They ran a barbershop. So I understand wholeheartedly the ideology of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and doing Mm -hmm. for yourself and making making, making your own, um, and that aspect of it. Cause you know, that I know of my family has never been on any, uh, government assistance or anything of that nature. Uh, my parents both worked. My father was in the household all my life. So I don't mm-hmm. know, but I've saw, I've seen that, um, the opposite of it. I've seen single parent households right up the street from people I grew up around. So I understand all that. Right. But my biggest issue with, <laughs> with black conservatism is, I can't get behind them wholeheartedly because of one, because of who they align themselves with. Cause if you think I'm going to align myself with a bunch of folks that run around with red caps on, you know, seizing the capital and all this kind of stuff, you think I'm going to align myself closely with those folks. You didn't lost mm-hmm. your damn mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause I can't, I can't get with you because you two linked to that. So, and then on top of that, you got these Candace Owens and oh, others yeah. who clearly are educated, but mm. at the same time, uh, as far as Candace Owens is concerned, I don't know. I can't. I have a hard time with her because I still get a smell of getting overism, mm-hmm. trying to Wanna get on whatever whatever gravy train is running along. She's gonna jump on yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, because you can't talk bad, talk down to black folks when black folks are wanting to lift you up. Hello. Yes. So. It's like I understand what they're where they're where they're coming from. To an extent, because I'm all about the self-preservation and doing for self. And because one of my most favorite songs that James Brown ever made was I don't want nobody to give me nothing. To open up the door. I get it myself. That's, That's my answer. Right. That's my anthem right there. Yeah. But when they but when they start trucking down that line and they take that turn at 
um, abortion and gay rights, then they start losing me right there because it's like, I, no, nah, I can't get what you're on there because y'all sitting there going off into a realm of you talk all this yip yang about the left influencing our thought process to where we feel mm-hmm. sorry for ourselves and always want handouts and all this kind of stuff. But now you sitting here taking that white Christianity mm-hmm. that was forced on you. And now that's come a part of your thought process enough to make you want to sit up there. And at one point where you were being stepped on, now you want to go out and use the, the word of God to step on somebody else. I can't get yeah. with that. Right. See, and like I said, they, they've got some good arguments about what the, the Democratic Party or liberalism have done to the black community, but guess what? Conservatives ain't ever done a whole lot of shit for us either. Because yeah. last I heard, everything that they can want to run down their little laundry list about what the left has done to us, I don't remember seeing no conservatives doing something to stop it. Right. Right. You you called it out, but what did you do about it? Yeah. Now you got these black conservatives running the left down. What are you doing about it? You don't have a spokesperson that anybody that any of the black folks want to listen to in the first place. We, if there's from looking at that document, they're saying that there's been some uprise in black conservatism, and I get that. I, I can see that that many of us are starting to wonder. Like, okay, so what if? Mm-hmm. What if? Because I see what you're saying, and I kind of agree with it. But what are you doing? to get us to, to listen to you besides running around, putting everybody else down. So we're only okay. speaking to white audiences. Exactly. Exactly. Like if you were going into, because the, you know, uh, uh, most of, uh, uh, I would say a, a large part of the black community, it would be considered conservative. Yeah, They're not leftists, you know, you could go into churches and talk about con- fiscal conservator, uh, you know, being co- fiscally conservative. Right. You can talk about being, um, you know, um, conservative on, um, on even, you know, uh, sexual health practices. Mm-hmm. Right. You could, you know, and you would have a huge audience. You'd yeah. have a huge audience, but you know, what kind of, gets me is when there's no conversation to the people, like you said, who would actually um, be interested and able to, you know, create a, a base audience for you. Right. And, you know, this is a tricky thing, right? It's a, it's a very tricky thing because when you know, we don't, we also don't want to be speaking in a vacuum, right? Right. We don't want to, um, do what they did to us. Right. For better, for, and there are many perspectives on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Right. Right. A lot of people say black people are too forgiving. Black people try, you know, too hard to assimilate, you know, all those things. (laughs) All Um, all the shit we had to do. Right. To survive. Right. You know, we're to survive. We had to, you know, find our own way. Right. And that's a way of, you know, how immigrants also, you know, relate. You know, a lot of times, you know, first generation immigrants are really bent on just 
you know, there's a, there's a, you know, a split between holding on to tradition and embracing the new place. Right. And we're always going to be living, you know, straddling those two areas. And, you know, the thing that, that really, you know, got me on, in terms of how people responded in the JDR and the time and place in which they were saying it, there were, it was just so tone deaf, you know, to like, mm-hmm. you know, think about these, you know, to, to have people saying these things. Um, you know, when, you know, there are so many black moms, like, uh, two bolusing brothers, bolusing brothers, those two little boys, um, you know, like the thought of that mom having to not only have the police talk with these young men, young boy, they're boys, you know, they're just babies. Let's not try to grow them too quick, you know, really, because you have to, by giving them these conversations. But also to make them aware that they're even triply, you know, vulnerable because they also have a disease and something could happen where they are separated from, you know, their medicine supply. I mean, like it happens. It has happened. It will happen where people will die in jail Mm -hmm. because they don't have access. Exactly. And to see how this man who you know, how many white people have addicts in their family, you know, people who are addicted and who are struggling and that they continue to pour money into and to, you know, forgive them and, you know, try to bring them back and create, you know, programs to help rehabilitate him, them. But this one black man who suffers from addiction and then they want to say, oh, well, that's why you were tortured and publicly murdered. And that, that's what justifies it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's no empathy around, you know, um, you know, the vulnerability of the black body yeah. and especially the black male body yeah. and, you know, and also anger and confusion around a, a black female body that isn't a site of disgust or desire right there's always that i think on both sides that sort of you know the presentation of you know popular culture and black women versus you know the realities um and the same thing goes with black men same thing goes even with queer individuals right Right. there is a you know media creates this perception around you know archetypes and then presents them to us as though that's the human condition. That is how people live. And it is not anywhere near, you know, any, any one person's true truth. And, you know, and this goes back to not acknowledging complexity is, is really a disservice to oneself. Um, trying to get away from, you know, we're all interested in self-preservation, right? You know, every decision that most of us make in our, in our lives from, Mm -hmm. do I eat the ice cream to do I get in the car drunk is about like, where am I on this level of how preserving myself? Right. And the fact that, and that's what we were saying, I was saying before, you know, that someone wants to believe that their, their self-preservation is more valuable than other people's self-preservation. This is where the communication breaks down. The understanding becomes too convoluted into emotion around worth. And in a capitalist system, you know, 
worth is about your productivity. Right. Worth is about how much you can make for the system. You know, this is why we're seeing all of these, you know, individuals become richer than nations, you know, without any remorse around, oh, well, you know, I could let me throw a million at this problem and see what, you know, it can do. No, no, no remorse for that. No, it's let me just continue to to push out, you know, what the people want, right. not what the people need. Yeah. It's, it's, um, that old, yeah. Cause that, that was cracking up when you said that, that there's a, something I posted the other day is like, so I'm supposed to assume that if my A1C is like over eight and the police put the knee in my neck until I dropped dead, mm-hmm. it's because I, because I, my A1C was high. That's, that was right. why. That so, was why. You know, it's, well, Let's now let's shift into the into the conversation around these two white men who committed. Uh, well, so recently there was one white man who uh, shouted racial slurs at a ball game when uh, one young teenager took a knee, right? Or a few of young mm-hmm. teenagers on a team took a knee. He was shouting racial expletives, you know, and into the mic so everybody could hear, right? right? And he blamed it on. Oh yeah. Diabetes. And then this other guy who shot up, you know, the massage parlor, what did he blame it on? Diabetes. Oh, his sexual addiction. Yeah. Well, he but he also said diabetes. Okay, I didn't hear that now. I heard that, yes. Now maybe that was just one source. Yeah, maybe but maybe I he got that on the tail end. That. I need something to yes. add to this. What else is wrong need, with me? I need to I add got to it. this. Right. <laughs> right. I didn't now, need that day. Right. We can, you know, we can now have this conversation around, you know, the use of diabetes, which people want to joke about, but then they want to use it to their advantage to explain horrific behavior. And, you know, it's just like when they used to, um, you know, blame rap music for kids being for white kids being Mm -hmm. violent. Nobody wanted to talk about, you know, Metallica and all the death metal ba- bands. They weren't talking about that. It's, it's rap music. The beat makes kids go crazy. Mm-hmm. And the things that they talk about makes kids go crazy. Yeah, you know, that, like that, there's always something. And that argument is so old. It's, older, it's mm-hmm. more likely older than my father. Mm-hmm. Older than my mother because they were saying the same thing about jazz. Yeah. Eventually said the same thing about blues, and, blues and rock and roll. Yep. Yep. Try to demonize anything <laughs> that a brown or black person made. Yeah. Because it's influencing little Johnny suburbs over here. Yes. You know, and, and then distracting it's, him it, from being a capitalist. Yeah, and it's, 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 like, it's like he can't make a living like that. Well, that's, right. It's, it's been it's been the same thing, and I, I, you know, I have the deepest sympathy for anybody who's addicted to opioids, but damn it. Yeah. When the crack epidemic was hitting, wasn't nobody right. upset. Right. Wasn't nobody upset. Wasn't nobody saying, well, this is a, this a pandemic. No, we need to we need to be more sympathetic to it and blah, 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 blah. And, and you wonder why white people looking at I mean, black people looking at you with the side eye. It's like, right. I, I'm, I'm older than you. I came up in the 80s. So, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's... 
you know, it's almost like, well, what do you want from us? Right. What exactly do you want from us? I and mean, they don't know. I mean, I mean they don't. I'm all out of passes. They just want to use us. They just want to use us without questioning. It is like the plastic epidemic. You know, we want something that's going to hold our stuff, last forever, <laughs> do this, do that, and then we just want to throw it someplace, even though we made it basically indestructible. Yeah, we want to just, but we want we want to do that. We want to do that, and then we want to complain about how we did that, right? This is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a sad cycle of, of human nature, right? But it really is built upon colonialism and capitalism, right? This whole thing of using up natural resources, sucking the the all of the life out of it until it cannot yield any longer. And, you know, and then being like, well, you're useless anyway. Like, you know, like, well, or we made it better for you. Oh, you stole all of my land. So be better for me. How is that? When you were a slave, you were well taken care of. You you had a roof. Oh, yeah. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. No. I keep forgetting that. Thank you for reminding me. Mm-hmm. That's what my book Willow, you know, it, it sort of is an introduction for young people around this idea of passing for um, for acceptance, but also to, you know, sort of in some way subterfuge, you know, using mimicry, right? Mimicking something in order to subvert it. But that becomes really tricky. You know, that becomes real tricky when you start telling people there's a scene where um, in Willow where the father who has been told, you know, these stories by the master that, you know, being free in the north would be terrible because you'd be on your own. You'd be stuck in the snow. Nobody loves you. No one's going to care for you. It's better to stay here where we have, you know, each other, where we have this place. And that mentality, you know, definitely, you know, has been pervasive for a lot of Black people. People of color, just, you know, people who are willing to believe in scarcity. And, but, you know, how do you not believe in scarcity when scarcity is all you see? How do you not fear um, not having enough insulin when a, a ton of people around you aren't able to afford the insulin that they have. Mm-hmm. How are you able to, you know, self-actualize and be at the job you want to really be at or be the, have the career you really want to have because you're afraid of not being able to, you know, have the medical supplies that you need to just exist, to just exist and not even like, cosmetically or without pain, mm-hmm. you know, like just doing, you know, like, okay, well, I need this simple substance to exist. Right. Yeah. We're and- willing to, there's such a willingness to, you know, dismantle, you know, um, you know, the humanity of things that we, that we don't understand. Yeah, I, um, that that I've had that discussion as well, you know, you try to get people to understand 
that, um, again, is multi-layered. I mean, diabetes mm-hmm. is, is something, it's already got its own set of layers. And then when you add the socioeconomic, the political, the dealing with pharmaceutical companies, all this, all the, the legislation, you add all that. Mm-hmm. That in itself is just, it wears on you. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm very proud to be a, a diabetes advocate that I get to um mm-hmm. to talk about this kind of stuff because if we didn't talk about it, nobody would. Right. Absolutely nobody would talk about this type of stuff because and, and that's the healing. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I, I like to encourage folks to be, I mean, self-advocacy is is a beautiful thing, but also look into talking to your neighbor. Yeah. You know. And explaining to them, if nothing more, you're explaining um, <clears throat> your experience to them so they can understand. Because that's what we're at. That's what we're doing. It is we're just trying to get people to understand what it is we're uh, we're having to deal with daily, or yeah, just daily or hourly. You know, is right. Trying to get folks to understand what it is we are we're trying to do. Uh, well, or at least As what we you have hear to deal my with. Dexcom and my pump blinging in the background right you know we're having these you know major conversations Mm -hmm. and you know we're still managing you know our pancreas of course my signal loss over here so oh see you know (laughs) gotta love it and it's you know it's it's you know like biggie said you know more money more problems more technology more problems more insulin more problems (laughs) (laughs) and you know you know you we have you know, we have to heal ourselves. And, you know, I think that that is, you know, we were earlier talking about creativity, right? And how important it is in our lives as individuals. And and I think that's what we bond on is that we are yeah. very creative individuals and we we also speak out and we use our creativity, not just for you know, ourselves, but to, you know, for, it it is very much a part of, I think, um, the healing process to be able to just make something that is, you know, not necessarily consequential or life, you know, changing, you know, Um, and to be able to let our humanity reside in those spaces, right? Right. And, and that is something that black people have always done, right? You know, quilting, gardening, yep. hair doing, you know, like this is, you know, that expression, you know, at its extremes mm-hmm. is often in response to the oppression one feels. Yeah. And that's, right? that's the resilience of it right there. Because like I've always said, I mean, I, I didn't come up with this saying, but I can't remember who said it uh, when I heard it, but it's. It just boils down to a weaker race of people would have died off a long time ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that speaks volumes to us. Um, And oftentimes we have to be reminded of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, that's where we as advocates have to come in. And that's why I'm I'm seeking out so many black advocates in the diabetes online community because we need our voices to be amplified. we ain't got time to be waiting around to be somebody to plug us, our amps in. We need to just bring our own amps and start amplifying our voices because 
you and I both know you come across black folks that are newly diagnosed that have no idea mm-hmm. what to do. I've had I've had conversations with people at work on my job. Uh, we just get yeah. into a conversation. Turns out they're diabetic and they ask me questions. And it's questions that are like, how do you not know this? Would nobody yeah. explain this to you? Yeah. You know, and I, I have to kind of reel myself in by saying, well, OK, well, maybe they haven't been informed. And that obviously isn't their fault. That's a, an injustice to them. So now mm-hmm. I got to put on my advocacy hat and they can ding me at work all they want to. They can pull the call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I talked to her for an hour. In 45 minutes of it was about diabetes, but so what? What you going to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. because it's, it's got to be done. Yes. It has to be done because yes. I don't know what's going to happen with this woman. You know, she needs mm-hmm. she needs some help. Somebody's not talking to her. She yeah. may not have access um, to uh, the nurse practitioner or a diabetes educator that may explain some of these things to her. She may have a daughter that's diabetic diabetic and not have access to anyone can tell mm-hmm. her about diabetes camp that may be available to her, mm-hmm. you know, these mm-hmm. types of things. And so that's why I got into this to try and help folks understand um, what's available to them. They don't, most of these folks don't even understand that there's, there's so much information that they could reach out and find on Facebook. You know, they're still thinking that Facebook is just some social media mm-hmm. thing, some side right. thing to spend a lot of time Looking at memes high and all this kind of reunion. stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> you know. Well, and it's 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 really about you know, and this is the work that I'm doing now around medical narratives. You know, black narratives matter. Yeah. Black stories are our lifeblood. You know, are being able to you know, it's like Black Panther being able to fantasize about you know our own existence. Mm-hmm. It feels like a privilege, Chelsea. It feels like a privilege and it shouldn't, right? you know? And so if that feels like a privilege, how are we able to even just tell our stories as we experience them? And this is, you know, how we're doing it. Right. And, you know, the narrative in terms of as a, you know, as a method of uh, communication, you know, has to be rooted in, in self-advocacy and, and empower, self-empowerment. And to share narrative means a lot of, you know, letting go a lot of a lot of fear, shame, you know, um, judgment right. for yourself and for others. Right. And this is where, this is what I'm saying. This is the healing. You know, this yep. is what you're doing right here is a healing. Because we we have been shut down for so long and silenced and made invisible for so long. Yeah. So, you know, the more that we recognize the importance of our stories and don't, you know, just don't judge. Don't judge. Don't have, you know, like we all want to, folks all want to go to church, but they don't want to remember. Just, like these folks, these real, real extra right folks who are like, this isn't right. And that isn't right. It's like, what about that whole, the whole thing about Jesus that I only remember is judge <laughs> well, see, not lest ye be judged. See, see, and I grew up in a, in a, in an area up in Northeast Georgia. I mean, supposedly there was like well over it's the way I heard it. Now there's well over like 50 churches in my hometown or in that county mm. area. And there's an actual um, Christian school in my hometown. 
Um, mm-hmm. Basically, they always make the joke they manufacture missionaries there. So, wow, yeah. And so I know that that whole mindset of um, drilling the, the Christianity in your head. And it's like folks like that tend to, they, is, they take the Bible and it's almost like they take a highlighter and they just highlight all the stuff that they're cool with. Yeah. But yeah. they forget about the other yeah. stuff. It's like, well, yeah. I don't know if I agree with that. So I'm just going to just in and then just I went. Turn. Yeah. Because yeah. you can find another space where it will contradict itself. Yeah. Because people, people, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to poop on anybody's face, but if we look at the Bible historically, anything that is written by a bunch of different people, right? And, you know, based upon word of mouth, it, it would never hold up in a court of law. You yeah. know, like it's just. <laughs> You know, it's not going to hold up. Like, and, wait a minute. You know, they, you, right. But it's in the Old Testament. But, right. But then in the new one, and then how did this one? And then if you look into the, the histories and the lives of these people who wrote these things and the time and what should happen, why are we still adhering to this? You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, as far as I see, God evolves, right? If my, if my planet evolves, it's because mm. God e- made it so. Right. Right. If my language can evolve, if my cognitive, you know, understanding of of who I am in this world, if if my learning and if all of these things can evolve and change, then why are we still trying to, you know, and I I have this the same feeling about the United States Constitution. Like, y'all, let's 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 do some work on it. Yeah. Let's just, you know, right. it was written by a bunch of racist slaveholders. Let, mm-hmm. Let's just Let's just say maybe their ideology was it had a good basis. Yeah, I mean, but let's if the states can know. get rid of like laws that have been in the books for God knows how long to prevent interracial marriage, if they can be taken off the books, yes. a lot of this stuff can be, you know, like you said, evolved. You know, and that's mm-hmm. and we're proof positive of it. Yeah, think about black folks that weren't allowed to read. Now you hear you are writing books. Yes. Okay. Yeah. One, Nat King Cole couldn't have a show because they didn't want him to because they didn't want to see his face on TV. But I can accumulate all this technology and make my own show. You know, that yeah. type of thing. This it's evolved, mm-hmm. obviously. So, like you said, it's, there's there's the proof right there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, you know, always taking it back to diabetes. You think about how much diabetes has evolved. Just the understanding of the disease Mm -hmm. the practice of treating the disease right um the 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 ability to even see commercials on the television right about you know the things that we use and that's in our lifetime Um, yeah that's That's in our our lifetime lifetime. because like you didn't see that stuff in the 70s and 80s no no and when you talk to some of the elders who have had diabetes since they were children, you see how limited often their lives were. Mm -hmm. And not because they didn't want to do a million things, but because that fear of, you know, can, can, how are you going to make it as a black person on your own in 1947, you know, or 1957 or 1967 or 1987 even? Right. You know, 
if you don't stay at home most of the time. (laughs) You had to take a refrigerator with you wherever Mm -hmm. you went. Yeah. Because most of the the days that we're talking about, (laughs) you couldn't couldn't be on the street at night. Right. If you lived in a sundown city. Right. You know, there's a great book um, by Kristen Hunter. It's a, it's a, it's an older book. I've been working on um, doing some work around it because it's one of the only works of fiction that I can find written by a person of color to talk about a case, to have a character with type one diabetes. Now this book, the Lakestown rebellion, it's about how the New Jersey garden state parkway um, you know, basically destroyed some of the most historic black communities in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So the parkway is, so the story begins with the mayor sort of selling the black mayor of this black town selling off land. Actually, it even begins before that with some black boys trying to sneak into a public pool that was only public for white people. And they, one of them gets killed by a police officer. <laughs> Oh, right on our black boys. Mm. So then we moved to the mayor selling off land. And then one of the central characters is an academic, a researcher who has type one diabetes. And, you know, his conversation with his black doctor and his struggle to sort of maintain, you know, sobriety right. and his diabetes. And then in in the midst of all that, you know, the town decides to rebel and to um, try to sabotage the the work that's being done. And it's so interesting as to why she would put someone with this condition into a book, you know, so randomly. Right. But I really do believe that it's it speaks to, you know, how the black body, you know, main kid is expected to perform and, and yet unable to often perform um, the way that it really would like to, you know, with its true potential. Right. And, you know, it is, it's not a perfect book nor, and this diabetic character does die in the end, (laughs) but, but, you know, historically, you know, just the example of it, and it's like he becomes a martyr, you know, he becomes the symbol right. of the fragility of black life, right? That he does all this work to try to sa- help sabotage um, this, you know, building project. And, you know, when people have, you know, their own people have sabotaged themselves, right? And right. then and been bought off. Right. Um, you know, when I think about that book, you know, and I try to get my arms around what, what was she trying to do? What was this for? I realize that it goes back to those complexities and it goes back to what we were saying about finding healing through creativity and art, just creating a problem so that we can look for a solution. And, you know, I think sometimes the problems are all already there, <laughs> but we have to be resilient enough to remember that you know we can solve some of these for ourselves on our own and between ourselves and if we have faith in that and not try to qualify it or quantify it just do it right Right. just do just do it like you were talking about building computers Uh, well let me me find some videos figure this out yeah yeah exactly you know this is how this is the world now 
Yeah. And this is how I feel like black diabetics can, can truly heal from, um, you know, the treatment and, and turn around and change the way that the medical industrial complex treats us. Right. I think that, you know, if it wasn't for black diabetics, um, you know, we would never have, we wouldn't have half of the visibility that we do now. Yeah. Yeah. True. I, I totally agree. Totally yeah. agree. Tanya, mm-hmm. tell us where we can find you, uh, whether yeah. online, well, most, I guess, online or wherever. Um, you're like a Twitter, so any social media stuff that you uh, got out there. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so disorganized around my, my, <laughs> my social media presence, <laughs> but uh, I do maintain Bobo, the service pup. Yeah. Um, Y'all gotta follow. And that's my service dog. Yes. Um, I also maintain Diabitchy, which also talks about, you know, women's issues in turn and diabetes. And it's more my snarky page where I, you know, show a little bit of my venom. Right. Um, you can also find me at, uh, Tanya Sheree And uh, that's my website where I have been starting to post a few, um, of my diabetes poems and, you know, I'm going to probably take some of them down as they become submitted for publication. Um, but you know, I want to do more with, um, blogging and, you know, like what you're doing here is so inspiring and, um, what I see other folks doing. And I have been inspired by so many people in our community, like, I never knew if I hadn't gotten onto social media for this service dog, I would have never have found this community and been embraced by this community. Um, And that is something that my mother never had going back to my origin story. You know, that is something that, and that's something that she has, you know, in her age group, you know, she can't really get, she can't really access it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not really, out there for her and she often sees because i think facebook has more people who are in who are less empowered than those on instagram right perhaps um instagram community for type 1 diabetes black type 1 diabetes people of color diabetes is a very um you know it's a very empowered brightly lit space right you know (laughs) and um you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And so grateful for so many people in that community. Um, so, you know, we have to make sure that, uh, to, to, as I step off my soapbox, (laughs) I will say, um, you know, we, it it sounds cliche, but we do have to support each other and, you know, not feel, some type of way because somebody got to something before you did right. or somebody did something before you did. Let us, you know, act on ab- our black abundance, right. Rather than any space of lack or scarcity. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Well, Tanya, thank you so much for being on a solar diabetes podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Really, really appreciate it. And, um, I, um, I, I mean, you've, you've truly inspired me because like we've, we've talked before on the phone and just, um, and, um, and I can cut this out 
Um, uh, next thing I'm going to say, you're um they announced the um uh, they announced all the uh, the um advisors advisors they announced that I already. Think so. Okay, because I didn't want to because I didn't want to let it out of the, out of the bag before because I was oh, an advisor yeah. once and they keep you on the hush hush when they when they yes. uh, when they do it. And In fact, they I owe them out. some documents. Oh I yeah, because <laughs> that that's why I was asking. Cause I don't know if I saw because I know they've been putting out Instagram posts of every all the individual yeah. uh, advisors. So you got that coming up. Um, yeah. You're looking forward to, cause I had fun doing it. It's, 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 yeah. it's, it's, it's some work, but um, it was, it was, yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of work. Believe me. Uh, and we're also, Tina and I um, are also facilitating a main stage um, program about, um, you know, women as caregivers and caretakers global, globally, the intersection of women of color and, you know, patient advocacy. Right. So, um, you know, we're, we're trying to put that together and the advocacy stuff and, you know, running a, an English department and put applying for promotion and trying to find a house <laughs> and trying to, you know, be a healthy diabetic, you know, I got, and then I also got on this advisory board for uh, the CUNY medical school and they're like, Oh, and here's a list of things for you to do. Oh, okay. I got that. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, uh, it's one of these things where, you know, we're, it's easy to get caught up. It's easy to get caught up. Yeah. And, um, you know, put some things behind and I am kind of second guessing kind of my commitments that I feel like I spread myself a little too thin, but yeah. I'm going to just do what I can. If they don't want to pay me, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just do the best you can. I, I can speak yeah. highly to that. Cause, um, I, I tend to do the same thing. And oddly enough, I mean, like I said, ever since last summer, stuff has kind of been coming out of everywhere. Uh, yeah. Different opportunities. And yeah. so I just kind of like, do the best I can with what I got because I got stuff on the back burner now that's coming up um, mm -hmm. in a, a week or so that I haven't really thought anything about. It like, oh, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm supposed to be doing that. Okay, so I got to remember that. Yeah, but yeah, you just you just got to do the best you can because um, yeah. it's difficult now with everything being you know online and you got to figure out what time it is and where am I going to be. So I got to get everything set mm -hmm. up and that kind of stuff. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's, just do the best you can. Do yeah. the best you can. Yeah. Oh, you can. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. I am uh, looking forward to seeing this come out, and congratulations thank on you. this new new endeavor in your life. Thank you so much. I appreciate the support. And tell yeah, Bobo, I yeah, said, yeah. "What's up?" I will. Luckily, he was quiet. <laughs> Usually, he loves to have a say during a Zoom meeting. He loves <laughs> to have a say. Yeah, I, I had to put mine back in the house. I I probably should. Folks can hear him barking. He, I don't. When he gets yeah. left in there by himself, the other one's chilled, and he just wants to just go off for no oh. apparent reason. So, oh, yeah. you gotta get that CBD oil for dogs. Yeah, um, <laughs> for real. What is it? The wonder, the little chews that you give them when a thunderstorm. There's a thunder wonder. Yeah, something. yeah. I gotta get him yep. some of that or, or some weed, whatever work. I don't know. Yeah, just just blow some weed in his face. <laughs> for <fine>. real. <laughs> Take that. All right. All right. Take well, care. thank you so much.
folks it is time for me to get out of here once again thank you for joining me here on the soul of diabetes podcast be sure to subscribe and definitely share this podcast with anyone you think that may benefit from these conversations so with that said again thank you be healthy be safe and definitely always be positive